the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. in the soul 
in two forms. First, in guilt, which will require forgiveness or pardon. And then second, in pollution, which requires cleansing. That's according to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Very few are pardoned because they do not agree with God about their need for pardon. They don't agree with God about their sin. And few are cleansed or sanctified or made holy because they will not end their lifestyle of wickedness. Now, there are several passages of Scripture I want to share with you quickly. And then we want to go to a book that was written in 1893 by William Godby. It's entitled Holiness or Hell. My heart is just so concerned. I see I see men and women, boys and girls, as though they were walking in a trance, captivated by the world. So I know even as I read these scriptures to you that many of you will say, of course, Pastor, no problem there. The problem lies in the distance between your intellectual understanding of the scripture and your actual practice in your life. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel, and my wife, Alexandra, is in studio. Welcome, Alexandra. Welcome. Thank you all for joining us. So we want to share these scriptures, and then we want to dive into portions of this book to try to talk about it in a bit of a different way. First John, the first chapter, I'll read verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And then verse 15 of chapter 2. This is 1 John, the second chapter, verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, could I stop? What is the world? It's the whole system of worldliness. And so I could just as easily read this. Do not love the Patriots or any other football team. Or do not love the Cleveland Indians and any other baseball team. Or do not love the Red Wings or any other hockey team. The world, it's very simple. If you think about then following verse, it says, The world and its desires pass away, 
So anything that's going to pass away is part of the world. So we sometimes refer to this as materialism or things of an earthly or temporal nature. So he's saying don't set your things on anything that's that you can't take with you when you die. It may not even necessarily be a bad thing. You could set your heart on a wife, but if the number one concern of your life is finding a wife or finding a husband, you have set your heart on the world. Anything that can pass away, you're right, is of the world. And we're called not to love the world. Then also, he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It does not say the theology of the Father is not in him. It doesn't say the Christian education of the Father is not in him. It's the love of the Father that is absent. And so the more we're involved in the things of this world, the more they entice us, the less love of the Father is found in our hearts and the love for worldly things grows exponentially and overtakes us but let's be clear that this isn't a spectrum so you can't say that you love the world to a degree and you love the father to a degree the scripture says if you love the world the love of the father is not in you it's not in you at all so either you love the father or you love the world and if you love the world and that's where your attention is, you do not love the Father. You may know the theology, but you don't love him. Yes. Chapter 3 of First John. I'll begin reading with verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful, and let me stop, let's define sinfulness. It is loving the world. It's loving the things of the flesh. It's loving the darkness of our age. If you're captivated by the Olympics, and that's consuming your time and your energy, and that has you fastened, you love the Olympics, and the love of the Father is not in you. Now, again, I'm not speaking about intellectual understandings. I'm talking about the deep things of the Spirit. Walking with Jesus is a Holy Spirit experience. It is not knowledge. Knowledge cannot save you. The blood of Jesus saves you. Now, let me continue reading. It's uncomfortable, but try to listen to it. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 
No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. So, if you are continuing to walk in sin, you have not been born of God. You may be a regular member of church. You may pay tithes and offerings. You may be very connected socially. In fact, you might even be the pastor. But the love of God is not in you if you love the things of this world. If you fill your time and energy with the entertainment of this world, it is clear the love of the Father is not in you. And then in Romans, the sixth chapter, I'll begin with verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, Alexandra, we've been talking a lot about revival. And give us your definition again of revival. Revival is a new beginning of obedience to God. A new beginning of obedience to God. Yes. It's not a new beginning of trying harder. No, that would be salvation by works and not by faith. It's a new beginning of actual obedience. Yes. Which requires a full dying to ourselves and to sin. Yes, and to be made alive in Christ. Supernaturally. And then it's natural to live in righteousness. Yes. Okay, now, the book that we're going to begin sharing with you was written in 1893. So, the framing of the words we'll have to stop and speak about because they're different than we understand today. Uh, Today one would not hear the words, are you sanctified? It would rather be, are you in God's grace? So we're going to stop and talk about that. But let's get started, Alexandra. So we'll be, we're reading from the book Holiness or Hell by William Godby, written in 1893. He ministered a lot in the, the middle of the country. So this is from chapter 2, the globe of full salvation. 1 John 3, 8, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Satan had utterly ruined the world by bringing sin into it. The restitution of Christ includes two works, i.e. a creation and a destruction. The Holy Ghost creates the life of God in the dead soul and destroys sin, utterly removing it from the soul. After this, the growth period comes, which lasts not only through this life, but through all eternity. Truly, truly, I say unto you, if a grain of wheat, having fallen into the ground, may not die, it remaineth alone. If it may die, it bringeth forth much fruit. John twelve twenty four. It is a well-known botanical fact That when the grain is put in the ground and germinates, if it does not die and rot and give nutrients to the young plant, it will soon die. So in other words, 
if you've done this in like a biology class, when the seed germinates, the outside part of the seed dies and the young plant actually uses that as food as it grows. So he says the rotting of the grain transforms the starch, which constitutes its bulk, into sugar to nourish the young plant. The Old Testament word temains, perfection, means strained honey. Sanctification gives you the pure honey and the nutritious milk of Canaan, the very food which the young convert needs and relishes. The logic of this passage is, if the newborn soul does not get this sweet milk and honey of entire sanctification, it dies, i.e. dries out and becomes a backslider. Let's, let's stop and talk about that. A young man comes to church, and he comes under deep conviction of heart. He recognizes that he is smoking, uh, fornicating, uh, cussing. He recognizes he's smoking pot. He's doing a number of different things that are utterly wrong before Al Almighty God. Now, as he comes, he confesses these things. He renounces them and declares he is now a Christian. But what will happen to this young man if he doesn't go any further? If he doesn't now press on to be made holy, not through his works, but by earnestly consecrating himself to Jesus and desiring now the full inner cleansing of his spirit. Our author is saying that that young man will fade away, he will backslide, and he will be gone. And in our experience, that is exactly what happens to a person who makes that confession, repents, and then does not allow God to change his life and make him holy. So let's be clear. So he's speaking of a person who has been born again or been born of God, as Pastor Ray just read. So this is someone who has truly been regenerated. They are a new person in Christ. They have stopped sinning. But he's saying that... <clears throat> There needs to be a deeper work of holiness in that person. Otherwise, they'll backslide and they'll eventually be lost. And, and they won't. Die. They won't be saved. They will go to hell. Um, I do know one person who I think is in danger of having this happen to him. I'm absolutely certain that this person was born again. His life was radically changed. But he ran into some bad theology, some legalism... And it's like the love of God is just absent from him now. And he's like a shell. So there's still like the outer form, but there isn't that sweet life of Christ coming out of that person. So that's very tragic. So he's saying that botany is an illustration of this. 
he goes on, If the body of the grain does not die and rot after germination, the young sprout invariably dies. That is the reason why many of our churches are ruled by wicked men and women. When they were first converted, every one of them longed after holiness. As only one hemisphere of the gospel globe was preached to them, instead of going directly into Canaan by way of Kadesh Barnea, which means holy delight, having no Joshua to lead them, they took a zigzag route through the howling wilderness, lost their regeneration, passed under the curse of God for unbelief, and are now bringing in an evil report of the land, i.e. opposing sanctification as a second work of grace. This happened this morning. I spoke with a, a man who is who was converted, who left his life of sin, but now he's backsliding. And the reason he's backsliding is he has never allowed the Holy Spirit to fully take over his heart and his life. Initially, his commitment was to do so. But when that became threatening to some things that he yet loved, he has backed away. And he's backsliding. And if this doesn't quickly change course in his life, he will go back to all of his former sin and much more than he was in before. And he will be lost. Now, even as tragic as that is, is the Christian who is converted, who now lives in the church as a social being, calls himself a Christian, but now loves the things of the world and doesn't even know his sad condition. I don't know which is more tragic. Probably the one who is walking in the church unconscious, loving their sin. So this raises the question, can we grow into sanctification? In other words, can we grow into holiness? This is a very important question. Define holiness for us. Holiness is when the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts and we're free from the desire to do evil. We're free from temptation. In other words, there's nothing in our hearts that wants to sin or that wants to rebel against God or so that wants to hurt others. Temptations will come, but there's no hook to grab us. Right. They're not appealing because our heart is set on Christ and on bringing his kingdom on the earth as it is in heaven. So our whole life is dedicated and consecrated to Christ. So the way God be would explain it is he would say, when you're converted, you're taken out of the world. And when you're made holy, the world is taken out of you. 
So when you first come to Christ, you're very aware that you need forgiveness for your sins. Your sins are forgiven. But then you need to consciously consecrate your life to Jesus Christ, which we've spoken about before uh, in this broadcast, where you're now accepting that the gospel commission is your life's work. And this is what is so absent in the modern church. Billy Graham would bring many people to a decision to serve Jesus Christ. But according to statistics, more than 85% of those people fell away. Why? Because the second work of being made holy was never done. It was never preached. Yes, we have to be instructed that it's not enough to just have our sins forgiven. But God requires us. Faith faith is where we actually believe God and we obey him. So we can't just kind of like slice out the parts of scripture about forgiveness and then ignore the rest of the commands of God. So Jesus gave all of us the commission to preach the gospel to every creature and to make disciples. So we can't just say, well, I'm saved, and then neglect these other parts. The life of a Christian is full-orbed. It's not just one slice. And so when we come to Christ and we make a confession of Christ, we make a confession, Jesus, we will serve you, we will love you, we give you our life, and we are forgiven for our sins. Then comes that next portion of being made holy, sanctified. So the question at hand is, can we grow into that sanctification? Is sanctification the work of a lifetime? So let's read. So William Godby writes, If you will get the illumination of the Holy Ghost so you can analyze and detect the devil's lies, You will be surprised to find them not only destitute of truth, but equally destitute of sense. No wonder John Wesley said, Sanctification by growth is nonsense. If you're listening and you're a Methodist, the the Methodist church you're a part of was started by John Wesley. And so he's saying sanctification by growth, in other words, growing into holiness, is nonsense. In in the case of the sown grain in the above scripture, when does the growth period come in? You know that grain first germinates, which is the new birth, regeneration, conversion. Then the old body rots and develops sugar for the nourishment of the young plant, which is the dying of the old Adam in the heart of the young convert. Look again at the passage. You find after germination or the new birth, and decomposition, or sanctification. Then comes the great period for growth and fruit-bearing, destined to continue not only through this life, but through all eternity. Don't you know, while regeneration pitches your crop, sanctification destroys all the devil's weeds and gives your crop a chance to grow? No wonder Paul used the terrible scathing language to the Galatians. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, having begun in the Spirit, i.e. regeneration by the Holy Ghost, are you made perfect 
by the flesh. Galatians 3.3 The case is parallel. These Galatians had been truly converted by the Holy Ghost through the apostles. Afterward, a lot of unsanctified preachers had come among them, teaching that whereas they were converted by the Holy Ghost instantaneously through faith, they could not be made perfect through faith, i.e. sanctified. But they must reach holiness by the tedious and slow progress of growth by works. Now, I've heard this preached when I first became a Christian. I was reading or I was listening to and reading a lot of the reformed material. And what was taught was you're born again instantaneously. It's a supernatural work of God. But then the Christian life is you're always go you're going to have a pattern of obedience but you're you're always going to sin you'll make a mistake you'll slip but it's like two steps forward one step back and so what this is it's actually teaching that you're made holy by works which is not true i was raised in the seventh day adventist church and in a book by <clears throat> They're prophetess. By the way, I am no longer a Seventh-day Adventist. I am a holiness preacher. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventists have in their book entitled The Great Controversy by Ellen White an illustration. It's a rowboat, and there's a man, or where a man would sit, there are two oars, and one oar is lab labeled faith, and the other oar is labeled works. And I was taught that it takes both faith and works to make it to heaven. That you are saved as a gift of God, a free gift, but there are strings attached. Because now you must work hard. And as a young boy, when I would do something wrong, my daddy would say to me, Raymond, you must try harder. You must try harder. Well, I heard that all of my young life was try harder, try harder. And I'm here to testify that trying harder does not make a man holy. I could not try hard enough to be made holy. It was not until I began to read the works of John Wesley in coordination with the scriptures that the veil began to be removed from my eyes and I began to see the truth that I could not be sanctified or made holy by works. It was, again, an instantaneous, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the same way as being saved was. So I just want to be very practical so you can tell if you are in this or not. So if you believe or if you're being taught Okay, I come to Jesus, I'm saved from hell, my sins are forgiven by faith, I'm born again. But now, I have to try to overcome sin by fasting, by praying against that specific sin, by going to certain workshops, by going to a priest and getting absolution. These are all types of trying to be made holy by works. So you cannot be made holy in this long 
painful, gradual process. So let's see how God B explains the better way. So he's going on to explain the Galatian church. He says, No wonder that sanctified Paul was terribly stirred over this invasion of the flock of God. Would that those who trouble you shall be cut off. Galatians 5.12 There was nothing awfully vindictive in this, but simply an awfully earnest prayer that God would remove their destructive influence, that they should not cause all those people to backslide and go to hell. If Paul were now on earth, he would not only cry aloud, O foolish Methodist who hath bewitched you, but he would still pray God to take away the unsanctified preachers who are preaching this foolish heresy and persuading the people to give up the great cardinal doctrine of perfection wrought in the heart by the Holy Ghost instantaneously through faith alone. In consequence of this heresy, millions of converted people in the different churches this day are sidetracked from the king's highway of holiness, led off into the dismal metaphysical swamps of this senseless, hell-hatched heresy of growth into holiness. Entangled by these delusive speculations, they vainly pursue Satan's lying of sanctification by growth. But now, there's even a more desperate thing that's happening, and it's, it's everywhere, and that is that you cannot ever overcome sin so you don't even need to worry too much about it. You're going to sin until the day you die. That's the teaching. And that totally removes the precious blood of Jesus and equates it to that of the bulls and the goats of the old covenant. The glory of the new covenant is that you can walk in Jesus Christ free of all sin. And if you do not, you cannot go to heaven. This morning as I was driving, I was driving behind a gold Mercedes. An elderly man was seated behind the wheel. And I noticed that he was smoking his cigar. But on his license plate, it said, on the frame around the license plate, it said, In Christ. I said, wait a minute. Here's a man walking as a worldly man, but he says, I'm in Christ. Well, how can he say that? Because he's been taught by preachers that you can never leave your sin, so enjoy it. Enjoy those things of the flesh because you can never walk without that. You have to wait until you die. How utterly destructive is this heresy that Pastor Godby begins to speak about that somehow I have to work so hard and God is a hard taskmaster to those who say, oh, okay, now God is not hard anymore because he saved me in the midst of my sin, and so I'm saved even while I go on sinning. So let's live the good life, and now the gospel becomes a prosperity gospel, a feel-good gospel, a cheap gospel. 
the results of this illusory heresy that we can grow into holiness is that new converts dry out, freeze out, and die out. Satan slips in like a weasel, steals away God's gold, which they received in regeneration, and pokes off on them a lot of his old brass. Then they're prepared for pulpit eloquence, a thing out of which Satan has made much capital, which Paul utterly discarded, sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. Now the new converts go off into intellectualism, one of the worst forms of modern unfaithfulness, which this day is sweeping millions into hell through the churches. They now dictate to bishops and elders and fortify themselves effectually against the unadulterated gospel of total depravity, in other words, that you begin with nothing holy in you. Evangelical repentance and faith, justification or forgiveness, regeneration, the new birth, the witness of the spirit in your soul, and entire sanctification or holiness, wrought in the heart by the Holy Ghost, and attested by the spirit that lives inside of you. So these people who were once converted, once they go off into intellectualism, can no longer stand the preaching of the awful retribution of the eternally damned in hell. Now this is a good question to ask yourself. Do you find it offensive if a preacher begins to preach on the eternal damnation of the wicked? If so, that is a sign that you have gone into intellectualism and backslidden. Godby goes on to say, 21 years ago, I went to a charge of that kind in the Kentucky Conference. They proceeded to tell me what I should preach and what I should not preach. I respectfully informed them they were too late in giving my commission. God was ahead of them. I knew if I flickered there, my liberties were gone. I was the devil's dupe, destined to lose my religion and in all probability my soul. So, of course, I preached the truth, fearless of men and devils, which was the very opposite of their dictation. Oh, how they were upset. I preached only two sermons. They gave me a free ride to the presiding elder's office and dumped me out. You will have to take this man away from us. He will smash everything and will never pay half of our assessments. The presiding elder exchanged me with the adjoining charge. We had 400 conversions and many sanctifications. We had to divide the work into two at the next conference. It is still two. The one that hauled me off tinkered along all the year with cornstalk fiddles and never had a soul converted. Don't you know, you and I could sit at the feet of John Wesley a thousand years and learn wisdom. What he says will do for the profoundest analysis. He says, sanctification by growth is nonsense. Let us indulge in a brief analysis. Growth is a naturalism. All healthy, living things grow as a natural consequence. Who ever heard of a boy or a cornstalk trying to grow? If you saw a boy with a system of pulleys and levers trying to elongate his limbs and grow, you would correct his folly. If you want your corn to grow, you sanctify the ground. In other words, you keep the ground clean, destroying all the weeds briars and bushes is the negative side of sanctification that's to be done now 
if I dig out all the filth, if I dig out all the filth, I certainly am sanctified by works. Now look out or you will get caught in Satan's nonsense. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, Ye are God's farm. Not the farmer, as the devil, especially through unsanctified preachers, would humbug you to believe. You simply lie still in perfect consecration. Then by perfect faith, untie God's hands. Give him the job, and you keep your hands off. Amen. One breath from the nostrils of God kills every weed and exterminates every seed the devil has ever sown in your heart. God will keep you clean through the same faith by which he makes you clean. When the farmer has pitched his crop and destroyed all the weeds, then he has nothing to do but look at it grow of its own natural spontaneity. Meanwhile, in many ways, he enriches his soil during the intervals of gathering his fruits. Now we come to the grand upper side of sanctification. Just as the diligent farmer throws great quantities of various fertilizer on his soil, making it richer and richer and more productive, so the glorious, omnipotent farmer of our souls, soil turns on us showers and showers of blessings in this land of corn and wine. Oh, what a pity that the church, led by blind guides, go howling through the wilderness, die, and leave their bones to bleach on the burning sand, while the rich fields of Canaan, with a thousand heaven-born incentives, are inviting them to come over and enjoy the luscious fruits. We're reading from a book written in 1893 by Pastor William Godby, Holiness or Hell. It's very clear that John Wesley was correct when he taught that if a man is living as a Christian in an ungodly manner, it's because he was not taught correctly the way of the cross. We're trying to teach you the way of the cross as it's found in the scriptures. Now, I recognize that what we're saying will cut across those who love the social scene and the sports scene, the movies, the video games, all of the entertainment of our culture. I recognize this cuts across that because you've been taught that you can participate in all of the things of this world and it will have no effect on your eternal salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are calling you out to be a part of a revival movement where you will turn your heart, your time, your energy, your money, everything you will turn to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, where you will set apart your life unto God, where you will not sit down and have a beer and watch the television, but rather you will open the scriptures and you will search them and allow God to begin to burn a fire in your heart, a throbbing in your breast, to know God, to be filled with him, to be transformed and changed into his likeness. So what we're trying to share with you today 
is that you cannot grow into this. How many people I have spoken to about their soul's salvation, and I have said to them, is there anything standing between you and God? And they, 99.9% of the people answer me, yes, there are still things in my life, but pastor, I'm trying hard. I'm growing. These things take time to deal with. They're in the desert, and they will remain in the desert so long as they continue to believe these lies. But they have a vested interest in remaining in the desert. And that vested interest that they have is they love their life. They love the way they live. They love their lifestyle. And so they are invested in their sin. But they try to pretend a holiness by saying, I'm working on it. One man who was an alcoholic wept many crocodile tears, saying, I want to leave my drink. And I'm trying, Pastor, as hard as I can. I'm trying to leave my drink. Well, trying to leave his drink is not the way to leave it. The way to leave his drink is to be crucified with Christ. It's to die. It's to utterly give that thing over to Jesus, and he will remove it. It's to stop trying to defend oneself. It's to stop playing games with God to stop pretending because Jesus only knew one way of dealing with sin and that was by amputation. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, did he mean literally? No. Spiritually speaking, he means to be utterly rid of that thing, not by willpower and strong trying but by totally surrendering to Jesus the climactic truth of the Christian religion by which it is distinguished from all other religions is that it has an omnipotent savior Jesus is an all powerful savior the reason why entire sanctification here and now by faith alone is the only true Bible religion in the world is because it is a superlative and means to have every fiber of your spiritual organism. It is the only religion that worships the God of the Bible. I heard a great preacher a few days ago who claimed to represent the only true church in the world proclaim to a huge crowd that it was utterly impossible to get rid of sin in this life that we are all doomed to remain full of sin until we die. You can see plainly that this man was so deceived by the devil as to preach his gospel, calculated to lead everyone who believed it to hell, for we are certain to go there if we die in our sins. He was preaching an imposter, a false Christ, who cannot save his people from their sins. Millions of people in our churches are idolaters, worshiping a false Christ. The Christ of the Bible is able and willing to save to the uttermost all that come unto him. 
Hebrews 7.25 Not after you die, when the devil will have you, but when you come to Christ, and he is calling you to come now. The word uttermost in this passage is pantalis, a Greek compound of pan, all, and talis, perfection. It means to save you completely unto perfection. You would better settle this, manner, this matter now, whether you are a Christian or an idolater. A Christian is a disciple of Christ. In order to go with him, you must take him for your savior. If so, as he is an uttermost savior, he saves all his disciples to the uttermost. The very fact that your savior does not save you to the uttermost is evidence that you, as Wesley says, are on a false scent. The proof of the true religion is right here that it saves you from all your sins through faith alone. Why through faith alone? Faith turns it all over to the Savior and lets him save you without any help. If he is all-powerful, he does not need any help. And we come pleading with you today to leave your sin, to receive Jesus Christ as your full Savior, from all darkness and all wickedness to be utterly given over to Jesus. Now, we've asked you, for example, to come to the revival meeting. And I have heard all of the excuses. Pastor, it'll take too long. Well, one wonderful woman who comes every Monday night faithfully this precious woman leaves her house at two o'clock in the afternoon in order to make her way from Germantown, Gaithersburg, Maryland and be there early enough to make sure the doors are open and to greet everyone. It's not too far. It depends on how hungry you are for Jesus. And it depends on how tied you are to the world, to the flesh, and to the devil. And our plea for you today is would you come now to Jesus? Would you make a decision to trust him as your Savior, as your Redeemer, and as your Sanctifier? The old-timers had a saying saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Spirit. Is that your testimony today? If not, will you get right with Jesus today? Will you confess your sins? Will you be honest with him and with yourself? Will you seek Jesus? Now, we're out of time for this broadcast today. But I urge you, would you go to our webpage? NationalPrayerChapel.com That's NationalPrayerChapel.com You can listen to this message again, and you can listen to our past messages. And you can also go to our other webpage, which is RevivalNow.Church We also ask if 
these messages are important to you and you believe these messages need to be heard in Washington, D.C., would you step forward and sacrifice financially? No, it's not a sacrifice. It's the giving of offerings to Jesus. If you're a Christian, you'll love giving. And you can do that by going to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and clicking the button to give. You can also go to the post office and mail us a letter to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You're also welcome to send us letters with questions that you'd like us to answer on the air. We'd be happy to take your questions. You can also email us. And the email address is? Contact at nationalprayerchapel.com nationalprayerchapel.com Yes, everything's on the webpage. Okay. And we'd love to hear from you. Now let's pray. Oh Lord, mighty and awesome God, you have offered us a full and free salvation. You've called us into yourself. Lord, many who call themselves Christians, are caught in their sin today. And I'm asking, will you break them free and will you revive them? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. And I'm Alexandra. And we're from the National Prayer Chapel. We're from RevivalNow.com. Church. I'm sorry, RevivalNow.Church. We love you. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. God bless you. Before the presence of His glory with great joy. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.